Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford. And on this episode, we're going to talk about something that everyone is probably fascinated with, as it is more of a pop culture image than a religious relic. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm pretty good, Joe. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Yeah, I, I think we're all familiar with this one, um, if for no other reason than from the now 40-year-old blockbuster movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, who can forget it, right? That's a cult classic. Oh, yeah. I, I vividly remember going to see it with my parents, my brother, and one of my brother's friends. And I have to say, and I know I'm not alone in this, that movie, well, sort of messed me up for a while. And when I say messed up, I'm thinking of the expletive form of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we all know what you're uh, talking about. <laughs> mm. um, that the scene near the end when the, the Nazi villains open up the ark, and yeah, their their faces like melt, and, and and that scene just sort of stayed stuck in our minds for well, <laughs> uh, for forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, forever. <laughs> my brother and I going to bed uh, later that night after we saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. I must have been about twelve, and my brother would have been like nine. I guess. And we were like uh, not wanting to turn the light off to go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, I was like lying in my bed in the fetal position going, how did that happen? How did that happen? Their faces melted. I don't ever want to find the ark. Oh, no, 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 no. Their faces melted. The ark is bad. The ark is very bad. Stay away from the ark. <laughs> yeah. Now, the thing is, today we tell our kids about how scared we thought that scene was. And, and they're like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, <laughs> like this scared you guys. Like this is nothing. I, I mean, I mean they have Raiders of the Lost Ark now on TV, uh, and show that scene over and over again. And it's been on AMC, Paramount Network, a whole bunch of places. Right, also FX Network. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. By today's movie standards, that's nothing. I know what you mean. My kids are like, "What? <laughs> What's wrong with you? You think that's traumatizing? That doesn't even look real. That looks totally <laughs> fake." But for us watching that back in 1981, that was something Shit. never before done in a movie. We had never mm -hmm. seen anything like that. That was state-of-the-art special effects at the time. And I guess uh, only Steven Spielberg uh, could have pulled that off. Yeah, you know what? I, I remember there were a lot of Christians who had a real difficult time with that whole movie. And that it portrayed God in a way that's, well, not exactly pleasant and loving, right? No, it did not. I remember that as well. There were some who were telling others not to go see it for that reason, mm -hmm. uh, were being violent and scary, and that it didn't follow the Bible. The problem is that it pretty much did follow the description from Old Testament passages. The Ark of the Covenant could kill anyone who touched it, anyone who was not permitted to touch it, that is, even if they're, uh, they had good intentions. In Second mm -hmm. Samuel 6, 3 through 8, and First Chronicles 13, 7 through 11, we have Uzzah who merely tried to steady the ark with his hand when it started to tilt on the ox-drawn cart. That's it. He was worried that it could fall off the cart, and so he tried to prevent that, and he got zapped. So God isn't messing around with his instructions here. When he says, don't touch it, he means don't flip and touch it. <laughs> it could also yep. bring pestilence, uh, like after the Philistines captured it in 1 Samuel 4-18 through 18, when uh, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, took it into battle. Uh, in previous battles, the Israelites laid waste uh, to the enemy when the ark was brought forth, but not in this instance. The Philistines 
managed to capture it, uh, to steal it, and put it into the temple of their god Dagon, where the idol statue kept falling down and breaking in the Ark's presence. Uh, then the people became afflicted with a disease. The uh, NRSV and the NIV uh, say it was tumors. Uh, yeah. That caused many to die, and uh, they're like, let's get rid of this thing. <laughs> so they put it onto a cart, hitched by two cows, and sent it out of their town. Now, it eventually ends up in Beth Shemesh, in Israelite territory, and all the people are happy to see it, so they make burnt offerings. However, God strikes down 70 of them for looking inside the ark. Uh, that's certainly to be a made-up number, uh, as the Septuagint has it at uh, not 70, but 50,070. Uh, after that, it winds up in Shiloh, at the house of Abinadab, until David became king, replacing Saul. And then it gets taken to the house of Obed-Odom. Uh, that's when Uzzah touches it and dies. Um, and it stays there for three months. Then David finds out about that and wants to go there and have it moved to Jerusalem. And as they are doing so, David is said in Second Samuel six fourteen through 17, to have leapt and danced with all of his might. And nobody was struck down that time. So very strange and inconsistent anecdotes there that tell about the Ark's escapade. It's in a town where people die from a plague affliction. A whole bunch of people die from trying to look inside of it. Yet it stays in someone's house for months on end with no mention of there being any problems. I guess it's okay sitting right there in your house, just as long as you don't you know, accidentally bump into it in the middle of the night while you're uh, going to the bathroom, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it is even more strange in a passage in Leviticus 10, uh, uh, verses 1 through 6, when Aaron's son, Nadab, and, and Abihu go before it with incense from unauthorized uh, fire and are themselves consumed by the fire that comes out of the ark. Now, it was considered unauthorized because it had their own or they had their own uh, kingling instead of that from the brazen altar, which God had required. So we see that pro procedures are of dire importance for the Levites when they approach the ark. And only they were allowed to have anything to do with it. Actually, only a clan of the Levites, the, the Kohelite, uh, were permitted to do any kind of housekeeping with it and, and the rest of the tabernacle. And you have to wonder if, if, the, if the, uh, for any reason at all of this protocol wasn't based on the need for some kind of specialized technical training, and much like in the way we would expect today for someone uh, who handles, say, nuclear equipment. Now, one thing that's of particular interest with the Ark are the two cherubim on its top, what would be considered the, the lid of the box. So we don't actually know what these things look like. And we are assuming that they are similar to our own depictions of angels with you know human anatomy and, and bird-style wings, much like how Hollywood presents it. Right. It was called the mercy seat. And according to Hebrews 9, 5, this is where the Shekinah was present, the manifestation of God's presence. It was made completely of gold, and there were two cherubim that were hammer molded, not cast molded. Uh, and they faced one another with their heads bowed and wings swept forward. We've all seen pictures of it in religious artwork, and it served a very important purpose on the most important day of the year in Judaism, the Day of Atonement. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, uh, they then sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial bull upon it and brought 
and that brought restitution for the sins of Israel. Hmm. Uh, also, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, the ark contained the Ten Commandments uh, or the Ten Commandments stone, stone tablets given to Moses, uh, Aaron's budding rod, and a gold pot that held the manna that fell from the sky and fed the Israelites as they wandered in the desert. So I ask about the cherubims because of the prophet Ezekiel's description of them, which we discussed in our what's it, uh, fourth episode about Ezekiel's chariot possibly right. being the description of a UFO, right? Right. Um, I remember Ezekiel described a chariot as a cherubim. Now, he also said that it had four wings, a glass dome, and wheels. So if he was truly describing cherubim, then the two atop the Ark of the Covenant are nowhere even close to this description. Well, maybe those two cherubim are more like two extraterrestrial flying objects, something like ancient airplanes, maybe. I mean, could they have looked similar to the Quimbaya planes, uh, the gold artifacts that were found in Colombia that you know dates to about 1000 AD? Um, these actually have a striking appearance to that of modern day aircraft. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was man-made, very likely by men named Bezaliel and Ahoelab, who are said in Exodus 31 to be filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of, of workmanship, whom God appointed. Now, in Exodus 25, uh, verses 10 and 11, um, the Ark is said to be made out of Arcasia wood and overlaid with gold, including the two poles inserted for carrying it. So like you said, the top cover, the lid, was also made of solid gold with the two cherubim facing each other. Now the dimensions given are 3.75 feet long by 2.25 feet wide um, <clears throat> and 2.2 feet or 2.25 feet high. Aside from what we're, what we've seen in movies and pictures, we have no idea what they looked like, the angels or the cherubim, uh, meaning how their faces appeared. Um, did they have human-like faces, as, as we usually think, or faces of another kind? Could they have been more machine-like in, in their appearances? Now, on the website Ancient Code, some researchers explain, explain that the construction of the arc is similar to that of a high-voltage capacitor with two electrodes separated by insulator pads. And the ark the, is very similar to other artifacts found in Egypt that were placed in tombs that exhibited a significant amount of magnetism. Uh, it's been detected within the chambers of the Great Pyramid of Giza that a, a resonance can be induced in low frequency radio waves of 200 to 300 meters, which through calculations means it can basically amplify electromagnetic waves. Of course, the arc being made of gold would have been extremely conductive of electrical current, which is an important feature of the capacitors. Yeah, capacitors set up both electrostatic and electromagnetic fields that affect the flow of electricity within the design configuration of circuits. Small ones are used in all kinds of electronic devices, while larger ones are used in power grids that are you know, energized from the uh, generating plants all over the world. And they can definitely store a charge. Small ones on the scale of nanofarads or fractions of a second 
and large ones on the scale of kilofarads for several days, a farad just simply being a unit of electrical capacitance. You know, even those tubes from the old TV screens, those cathode ray tubes, or CRTs, as they're called, those big, huge, heavy things that have now been completely replaced by plasma screens and LED flat screens, they could hold a significant electrical charge, sometimes for hours or even days. Or, or how about uh, a Leiden jar, which dates back to about uh, 1750, and it was supposedly used by Benjamin Franklin in his famous and legendary kite experiment. Uh, it was nothing more than a glass container with a metal rod put into it that connected to a piece of metal foil. The jar was sometimes filled with water so that it would uh, come in contact with that foil, and demonstrations showed that it could hold a decent-sized charge, enough to give a, a shock. It was sort of a, like a predecessor to the capacitor. So now if the arc was something like a capacitor, its dimensions would pretty much make it like a super capacitor, which means it would store a lot of electrical energy like the ones that you would find in uh, a modern-day power, power distribution line. But if you were to touch such a capacitor... Oh, you'd become like a mosquito in a bug zapper which oddly is how people are said to in the Bible to have died when they touched the Ark of the Covenant. It seems uh, a lot like electrocution, so it makes you wonder if it didn't have electrical properties, as if it was some uh, sophisticated power generation or energy containment control system. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. So like we mentioned, it, it, it is said to have been used as a weapon. So the books of Joshua, Judges, and Samuel describe many battles with the Mo, Mo, uh, Moabites, the Evitites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites. It's just a whole lot of ites <laughs> that were completely annihilated when the uh, Hebrews went forth with the Ark. Uh, I mean, just look at the Battle of Jericho in Joshua 6. Um, it's, it, I, I've always wondered how the Israelites were able to defeat the giants of, of the land of Canaan. Like The report from the two spies was that the giants were so tall that they felt like grasshoppers next to them. Now, I doubt that they were actually that big, but still very, very tall beings. So these beings were described as the descendants of the Anakim and the Riphaim which means that the giants were not completely wiped out in the flood. So if these races of giants were still around and were extraterrestrials, then how were the puny Israelites able to take them down? Uh, If this story holds any truth, then their defeat must have come by way of a high-tech device in the hands of primitive humans, i.e. the Israelites. Now, I believe that device was not was none other than the Ark of the Covenant. So I guess you can say that the aliens' own technology was used against them. As one of their comrades, that being Yahweh, secretly went against them and provided his inherited people uh, with something he knew would get the job done. 
and that it did. So they definitely used its power, whatever power, or whatever form of energy it gave off to their advantage in a military application. But we see it had a more sacred pur purpose, if you will. Um, it was meant to be a communicator between God and his people through Moses. And we, of course, know that they had their meetups inside the, the tabernacle tent. And for being something that was meant for communicating, it was usually dangerous. Um, uh, are, are, are you aware of the Are you aware of communication uh, devices posing any dangers? Well, yes, actually, uh, when they're operating at high powers, um, radio and television transmitters work on millions of watts, as do the generating plants and transmission lines, substations um, of the power grid. Uh, there is something called RF, which is radio frequency. And that is what is being transmitted and received by communication devices uh, with the broadcasting antennas that you see in many places mounted on those very tall towers. They're transmitting RF at such a high wattage that um, it can cause what almost looks like a sunburn. And the same is true with radar scanners. Uh, there are stories of people having lethal exposure to RF, especially in the wavelength band of microwaves. So uh, when technicians work on this equipment, the transmitters uh, need to be shut down. Otherwise, the RF, which is uh, just radiation, is too unsafe. I know when I was in the Air Force, I met someone who was a radar technician. He was actually in the Navy, and he worked on ship radars. And he said he was once fixing a wire harness while the transmitter was still turned on, and he got like a really bad sunburn on both of his arms. Uh, he wasn't even touching the actual scanner. He was just too close while working below it to do the repair. So it, it can indeed be dangerous. Uh, there is also the hazards with what is called EMF, which is electromagnetic field. And that's present in dangerous levels where high voltage electricity is applied, like how we see in things like motors, generators, transformers, and of course, uh, capacitors. Just consider what is said to have happened to Moses after receiving the two tablets of the law from God which were to be put into the ark uh, in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. It says that his face shined so brightly that he had to put a veil over it. This mm -hmm. almost sounds exactly like a burn from radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, could what is described here as stone tablets really have been more like a, a, like a radioactive component for the ark, like a power converter or a fuel cell or even an RF transmitter? And now you see that? That makes sense to me. Like this could have been. So uh, if the Ark of the Covenant was some kind of device like that, something like a radio for talking to God, then the presence of RF or EMF could very well have been high enough to be deadly. Uh, and of course, there would be the necessary safety pr procedures to be uh, put into place in, in terms of who was qualified to manipulate it, uh, what special protective suits may, be uh, may need to be worn and and what place it could safe, safely be stored. So like any piece of dangerous equipment, uh, we know there are instructions on how to respect it because it can kill someone. But we see this very type of protocol of respect and fear in the handling of the ark with who has permission to do it and how they are to do it and where they are to do it and what they should be wearing while doing it. So interestingly, the, the Pharaoh Ramses II is said to have had something very similar to the Ark of the Covenant and called the Sacred Bark. 
it too was held in a special tent where strange things happened and was to be transported with poles by so-called pure ones who were basically priests. Um, this particular object, however, had two vultures with wings swept forward, like that of the two cherubim. Vultures? I mean, could could they perhaps even be an earlier form of what we of what would become the uh, the two ravens that belong to the Norse god Odin? Uh, even in uh, Tukankatum or uh, Tukankatum's tomb, uh, there are glyphs on the walls that depict something that looks remarkably similar to the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, an actual cubical object was found among the contents of King Tut's tomb. So you have to ask, what is the significance of these box-shaped arcs, and why are they found within burial chambers of pharaohs? Perhaps, like many of the myths of the ancient world, there is a source from where all of these character images and object uh, images originate. Um, could it be that such a source is, is from our ancestors encountering advanced extraterrestrial beings and their technology, which, through, uh, in, which uh, though incredible, was yet misunderstood and mis- miscommunicated? Yeah, the Assyrians had something like that under their king, Tiglath-Pileser III. In a relief found in Nineveh dating to around 744 BC, there is something called a divine palanquin that was a box-shaped relic carried into battle on long poles. In Saudi Arabia, some Bedouins have a legend of an utfa, which, uh, like the Ark, was carried around on horseback by several of the tribes. Supposedly, it wasn't a box-shaped object, but rather a bundle of um, wooden rods tied together with magic spells inscribed on them. So even though the Ark of the Covenant is a unique thing, the imagery of arcs goes beyond that. Even when talking about the boat that saved Noah and his family in the Great Flood, it's called the Ark. Uh, we see in Egyptian theology, the spirits of the pharaohs are carried to the duat, the, the realm of the dead, in boats or barges, similar to what would be called an Ark. So they seem to be uh, containers that have a special purpose, a divine purpose, that of carrying a message or at least a a symbolic message, perhaps a message in the form of a portal. It could also be that long ago when the Anunnaki were here, uh, they had large telecommunication assemblies that would move around uh, by them and, and be set up by them to acquire contact with the spaceships up above or with uh, other bases on the Earth's surface, or even with the command and control centers on Nibiru. Uh, This gear of theirs may have been transported from place to place in cubicle containers upon land-roving vehicles, much like how we see deployed soldiers move and set up Army satellite communication links in the field. For anyone who has uh, seen such equipment, you know it is comprised of control consoles, power generators, network connectors, batteries, computers, and radios that are mostly cubicle in shape. So if primitive humans had witnessed the Anunnaki using an array of this kind of equipment, they may have come to believe that these things that they saw had some kind of magical power. Uh, Who knows, they may even have fallen victim to accidentally touching the electrical components and being killed from the shock or from the EMF exposure. Hence, the developed image that became impressed upon their minds and then told through oral tradition of how divine power can mysteriously reside in a box, a special box. So when we read the tales of people dying from the improper 
uh, handling of the ark. These could be reductions from the biblical scribes who explained this phenomenon as a display of God's power and wrath. So they would not have had a technical basis for, for saying how people died or became ill. So they would say something like God had struck someone down with fire for not using the right incense. So these were probably descriptions of bad things happening from procedural errors, uh, perhaps involving uh, the electrical charges in its power system were, were to be safely dissipated or, or grounded. Um, it is yet another example of a story told from the misunderstanding of alien technology. Uh, you have to wonder why there are instances when the arc, you know, proves very dangerous and other times, yeah, not so much. So like when it's captured, right? Um, how can this be? Well, sometimes it is powered up and working and other times it is shut down or perhaps even malfunction. Right. And it may have, uh, reached a point in time when it no longer worked anymore, like a battery that went completely dead, or even some kind of unknown fuel cell that no longer worked or became totally uh, depleted. Right. So, like, think of the uh, Baghdad, Baghdad battery discovered in uh, 1938. If it really was a galvanic cell from, say, 2,000 years ago, as some think, then a one-time uh, it was energized at least enough so to perform some kind of task like electroplating or shock treatment. Uh, but when on Earth in Iraq, it was not energized. It was far too old. Uh, maybe it's the same way with the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe it became so old that it just you know, ran out of juice, so to speak. But the big question is what became of the Ark? And many have suggested that it is hidden until the end of days on Mount Nebo in modern-day Jordan, as is claimed in the, the Second Maccabees, chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, that the prophet Jeremiah put it there. Um, that is also the place where Moses went to view the uh, promised land before his death. Some also claim that there was more than one Ark of the Covenant, and others say that there never was one to begin with. The Bible says nothing about what happened to it. Uh, the passage you just mentioned is found in the Apocrypha, and is not considered part of the Bible. However, it is to Catholics who believe much of the Apocrypha, like the Book of the Maccabees, is inspired scripture. Uh, the Apocrypha to them is called the Deuterocanicals. Uh, regardless, the Ark has never been found on Mount Nebo, neither has any part of the tabernacle that is said to have been hidden there has been found with it. Uh, so when I was an undergraduate in college, I did a research paper on this very subject for one of my English composition courses. Uh, and as I read many books and articles, it became obvious that there is a ton of mystery with this. But to me, the most simplistic explanation had to be that the Babylonians took it when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem in 587 BC after destroying the Temple of Solomon. I mean, if they destroyed the temple, then surely they eluded everything in it that was valuable. The Ark was made of gold, so they probably would have just melted it down. Yet there is no mention in any of the ancient writings or monuments that say that. There are no indications at all that it was taken by the Babylonians back to Mesopotamia. So could it have possibly have remained in Jerusalem after the Babylonian destruction, uh, even being present in the Second Temple? Um, you have to think that during the crucifixion in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where it is said that the veil 
of the Holy of Holies was rent in two, that the ark must have been in there, uh, that the Shekinah glory of the Lord was present there. Otherwise, why would the veil be, be there at all? And why would there be any significance to it being torn when Jesus is crucified? Uh, the tearing of the veil is symbolic, but it had to mean something to the Jews at the time. And according to Levitical law, uh, it was the barrier between God and the people. Would the Jewish uh, Sadducees at the time revert a holy of holies merely as an empty room? I mean, it may very well be that they did. Right. I mean, in, in Hebrews 9, 7 through 11, Jesus' death is said to replace the need for the tabernacle, the high priest and the sacrifices and offerings with he himself becoming those very things. Right. But it is mute about uh, the ark and whether or not it was in place inside the second temple. But let, let's face it, the Sadducees saw the temple mostly as a center of commerce and a, a great source of revenue for themselves. We can't forget how Jesus vividly chastised them in Matthew 21, 13. Mark eleven seventeen and Luke nineteen forty six, calling the whole place a den of thieves. So really, by that point in time within Judaism, I'm not sure the idea of the Shekinah glory or and the Ark of the Covenant had any real meaning to them. We, we've heard many theologians and pastors uh, pastors say as much uh, about that, affirming that Jesus as the Messiah made the temple an obsolete institution with the so called new covenant. Now, this second temple, which is usually referred to as Herod's temple, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So if it had indeed served, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had indeed survived the Babylonian destruction, would it have been there for the Romans taking? Again, history is silent about it. There is a monument in Rome uh, that was built in the first century AD. It's still standing there today, and it is the Arch of Titus. It was constructed to commemorate the victory over the Jewish rebellion by Titus, the emperor. And it has a bas-relief on it that celebrates the fall of Jerusalem. In, in one, there are Roman soldiers carrying away a large menorah and treasures from the city. It doesn't show the ark or mention anything about it. So you have to think that if they truly did get a hold of what, uh, get a hold of that, the ark of the covenant when they sacked the temple, that they would have been you know, boasting about it. I mean, the whole monument is there for no other reason than to show the greatness of Titus for having destroyed Jerusalem and its most important landmark, that being the temple. The whole lifeblood of Judea and uh, the whole lifeblood of the Jewish rebellion. So if the ark was there, you know, the most powerful object to be possessed by the Jews, then surely there, there would be praises and accolades inscribed on it to give glory to the strength of Rome. I mean, heck, if the Romans actually got a hold of something like the Ark of the Covenant after subduing uh, the Jewish rebellion, and I think they would have stuck that thing right on the very top of the Arch of Titus. Am I right? <laughs> um, yeah. But really, if the Ark and other sacred furnishings of the Holy of Holies had made it to Rome and had been there for some time, it would be very plausible that the church would eventually have acquired it. The Vatican Museum does indeed have many wondrous artifacts from around the world. But the Roman Catholic Church does not have any claim to anything like the Ark or the Holy Grail in their possession. Uh, most of the cathedrals of Europe house relics of all sorts, but nothing even comes close to that. Yeah, and it doesn't seem real probable that the Ark was in the Second Temple uh, at all. It likely went missing long before that time. Um, there was another invasion of Jerusalem before that of the Babylonians, and it took place and not long after Solomon's death, 
when his son Rehoboam was king. The Egyptians under the pharaoh Sheshag um, supposedly went up against the city and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. It's in First Kings chapter 14, uh, verses 25 to 27. And I believe this is the, the basis of the story for Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, with it being taken and hidden away in a city that is uh, buried under the desert of, in, in Egypt somewhere. Right. And, and there's a steel in Karnak that records Sheshonk's campaign against Israel. Uh, yet it is not very grandiose in describing the booty taken in the pillaging of Jerusalem. It seems that he didn't really enter the city, but merely laid siege to it and was given the royal and priestly coffers by Rehoboam as a payment. Nothing is even hinted that the ark was taken. Now, the image in the tomb of uh, Tutankhamun uh, may make some think that it was captured by the Egyptians. However, we have to keep in mind that this dates to the 14th century BC. Tutankhamun's uh, reign, he reigned about 200 years before the time of the Exodus. Hence, this image would have been painted 200 years before the Hebrews even made the Ark of the Covenant. So whatever Ark is shown on the walls of Tutankhamun's tomb is a different Ark. This would give credence to the hypothesis that there were other Arks and that their depictions come from older sources, possibly from a time when the Anunnaki aliens were utilizing such devices. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I came across an article by Sarah Pruitt titled Fate of the Lost Ark Revealed. Uh, it's about an, an, an ancient Hebrew text called Mezeket Kilim, uh, translated as Treatise of the Vessels, which was recently translated from a book known as Emek Acha. Uh, it was published in 1876 from the older version that dated back to 1648. A Scottish professor named James Davila at the University of St. Andrew is said to have translated it to English in uh, 2014. According to Davila, Domesticate Kelum states that King Solomon's treasure uh, treasures were hidden in uh, were hidden by the Levites in different locations throughout Judea. And Babylon. What got my attention was that it says some of these treasures were delivered back to the angels Shamshiel, Michael, Gabriel, and maybe even one named Sariel. Well, if that's the case, then we'll never find it. Unfortunately, the text does not reveal what happened to the ark. So go figure, right? <laughs> However, it continues by indicating that all of these things will be revealed to us when the coming of the Messiah. Of course, like everything with religion, we must always wait until some undisclosed time uh, in, in the future to see something. So interestingly, Lean Rittmeyer, an architect and archaeologist, claims to have discovered the spot where the ark rested in the Holy of Holies. And he states that you can actually see it inside the Dome of the Rock as a rectangular impression about 10 feet away from the fence line which coincides with the measurements given in the first book of Kings. And he believes this confirms the account of Solomon preparing a place for the ark to sit. This would make sense in order to keep the ark steady. Now, Professor Davila also claims that the, um, that the Mesekit Kilim parallels the Copper Scroll, which was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's actually made of sheets of copper and believed to be around 1900 years old. It mentions the temple treasure being scattered and hidden in various 
uh, yet non-specific places throughout the region. The Mezekit Kilim and the Copper Scroll both mention vessels made of gold and silver. So you have to wonder well, what was so important about all of this for the ancient scribes to record it on sheet metal, at least in the case with the uh, Copper Scroll. Yeah, the Copper Scroll was discovered in 1952 in the caves of uh, Qumran, where the other Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And like, unlike the others that were made of papyrus, this one was made of copper. Uh, has been studied pretty closely by scholars and is currently on display in the Jordan Museum in Amman. It is made of pure copper, not bronze, and it was extremely brittle when it was unearthed. Uh, they had to use a small rotary saw to carefully cut it into fragments because unrolling it would cause it to severely disintegrate. So in a symposium at the Smithsonian Institution in 1990, historian P. Kyle MacArthur uh, with the Biblical Archaeology Society explained that the quantities of treasure given in the Copper Scroll are extremely large, many, many tons, and most agree that it does not uh, relay accurate numbers, uh, and not even a smidgen of this treasure has ever been recovered. The scroll claims that it is dispersed among 64 locations. The quantities are most likely exaggerated in order to portray some kind of religious or, and political importance, as it is assumed that the treasure is quite possibly from Herod's temple. Now, it's also believed that the reason that all of this gold and silver in the form of vessels, ingots, and coins, again, in, in the tons, enough to fill more than 10 semi-trailers, if you were to believe it as being literal, is that the Jewish priest feared a Roman siege and wanted to hide it throughout Palestine. Although this is contrary to what was written by Josephus, who said the Romans did indeed capture the treasures inside a temple when they sacked it. Right, and it does not mention the Ark of the Covenant, which in and of itself seems strange. Uh, this was the single most sacred and available vessel, and with it not being even entered at among the, the whole treasure trove, makes you think that it simply wasn't around at the time of the, the Copper Scroll was written which seems to have been sometime in the uh, first century AD. Right, right. And there's a, you know, there's a legend that's been around for quite some time, at least since the Middle Ages, that the Ark of the Covenant was, or perhaps still is, buried in a secret chamber underneath Temple Mount. Uh, the Dome of the Rock is built on the site that is supposedly the foundation of Solomon's Temple. And there is a cave inside of it called the Well of Souls, which is uh, an, an escarpment. It's, it's on an escarpment of uh, at temple, um, Mount Moriah. It's the actual piece of Mount Moriah. It is believed by some within Christian and Jewish circles that the Ark was placed there before the Babylonian destruction, meaning it was concealed long before the Roman destruction. But there uh, may also be other voids even further down uh, the Well of Souls beneath that, which are completely inaccessible. So during medieval times, we find a lot of tales being written about knights and about chivalry, and about fantasy, and about mythical creatures, and of course, about the quest for the Holy Grail. And a lot of this was inspired by the stories of the Crusades. We've probably all heard the King Arthur story of Christian de Troy and uh, the Percival story of Wolfram von Eschenbach, as well as many others. It's literature that is known as Grail Romance. But in addition to the search for the Cup of Christ, uh, that being the Holy Grail, that was spawned in this time period, there was also a passion for the search of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Indeed, some scholars think that the two objects are actually one and the same thing, that the whole Grail story is really just a modification of the Ark story. And to add to the mystique of the Holy Land during the Crusades, there is the secretive order of warrior knight monks that were called the Knight Templars. Now, they were established to be the guardians of Solomon's temple. And when they arrived from France, King Baldwin I granted them unrestricted as, as well exclusive access to all of Temple Mount. Now, they dwelt there for seven years. And the belief among many is that they found a substantial amount of valuable uh, relics that were long hidden under the Dome of the Rock. But there is also a belief that the Templars amassed a huge quantity of treasure that they took back to France and that uh, it was secretly dispersed to various cathedrals across Europe to once again be hidden away. Right. Uh, yeah, they are one of several orders of specialized knights to set up a presence in the Holy Land. Uh, there were the Knights Hospitallers of St. John, the Knights of Malta, uh, the Teutonic Knights. But the Templars were granted the unique privilege of setting up their own garrison slash monastery on the site of the temple. Like you said, Baldwin, the, the ruler of the newly formed Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, permitted them to have sole and exclusive residence there. So their mission was uh, to secure the passages to the pilgrimage sites of Jesus' crucifixion, passion, and nativity. But it's not likely they put much of their effort into that, with only nine of them uh, being there during that seven-year stint. Um, now, also, according to Graham Hancock, there are several sealed-off tunnels on the southern wall that date to the 12th century, which is when the Templars would have been there. And likewise, he claims that they may have learned about the uh, Peshetta, which is the Syriac Bible, and one of its apocryphal books uh, is called The Vision of Baruch. Uh, this is a pseudo-epigraphical text which tells of the coming day when the temple will be restored with all of its vessels, and it may have clued them into being able to find some of these uh, relics in Jerusalem. Of course, many of us have learned about the Knight Templars attaining great political influence and wealth for 200 years, not to mention amassing property across Europe and controlling a sophisticated form of international banking that was unrivaled until the late uh, 19th century. This eventually made them a threat to the Vatican and the King of France. In 1307 came the infamous Friday the 13th systematic execution of the Templars, but there are clues that they may have moved their most important treasures and relics to secret places to be stored. Most of us have read Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. So we've heard about the symbols of the Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland with regard to the Holy Grail. Those same symbols may also pertain to the Ark of the Covenant. There are some historians, we believe, the Templar's treasure was taken, from, uh, taken away from France, possibly to the renowned Oak Island of Nova Scotia, uh, as the fleet of their ships, uh, having departed from the port of La Rochelle, was never again seen. So the questions are, was there treasure on those ships, and was the Ark part of it? And we have to remember that the Knights Templars were quite masterful in how they conducted their operations, uh, and they were disciplined and devoted in both their faith and fighting skills. Uh, actually, for the time, their battlefield tactics were extremely formidable and advanced. They would be the equivalent of today's special forces. And yes, they made enemies with Pope Clement V and King Philip IV of France. 
enough so that they organized and coordinated a stratagem to have them all killed. So you have to wonder, how did the Knights Templars start so small and then become so powerful, influential, and wide-ranging? Could it have been because they truly did acquire what would be tons and tons of gold and silver from the Holy Land, and maybe something extremely valuable, something priceless even, say, like the Ark of the Covenant? Right. Now, there is another hypothesis about the resting place of the Ark in which there is testimony to its authenticity uh, even to this day. The location is in Aksum, Ethiopia, within the very old monastery, uh, St. Mary of Zion. Uh, there is legend that goes back to the 14th century about the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon in the first book of Kings and the second book of Chronicles. It comes from a manuscript called the, the Kibra Nagas, which means the glory of the kings. And based on the Ethiopic text, the Queen of Sheba became impregnated by Solomon during her envoy to Israel and later gave birth to his son after he had returned to her uh, after she had returned to her homeland which is believed to be in Ethiopia uh, he was named Menelik and was said to have traveled to Jerusalem to see his father Solomon who was impressed and honored by Menelik so much so that he imparted the ark of the covenant to him before his return to Ethiopia now apparently uh, Solomon adored Menelik so much that the Hebrew elders became jealous and complained that um, about how much favor he was showing him and said Menelik must go back to Ethiopia. So Solomon agreed, but on the condition the elders send their firstborn sons along with him. After this, the ark was taken from the Holy of Holies and given to the entourage to Ethiopia. Interestingly, uh, to this day, there is a significant Jewish population in Ethiopia whose tradition holds that their ancestors migrated there from Israel at the time of Solomon, consistent with the Kibra Nagas. That is intriguing uh, that the same tradition maintains that the Ark and other furnishings of the tabernacle are in that land. Uh, although supposedly it didn't go directly to Ethiopia. Uh, first, it went to Elephantine Island on the Nile River in southern Egypt and stayed there for about 800 years. Uh, then it was moved to one of several islands in Lake Tana for another 1,400 years, and then to Axum after the Ethiopian Orthodox Church acquired it. It is said to be situated in its own Holy of Holies inside the monastery, and no one has ever laid eyes on it except for the monks who have uh, been given a lifetime job of guarding it. Uh, likewise, very few people have even seen the guardians, um, but it is said that many of them have developed uh, severe cataracts in her eyes, which is attributed to the Ark's powerful radiant energy. So it seems that the leads through um, the Middle East, Europe, Africa, and even Oak Island have not brought forth the Ark of the Covenant, at least not yet anyway. So if the Ark is an alien device, a powerful and specifically designed apparatus of extraterrestrial origins, then it may have completely stopped working in which case the aliens discarded it uh, here as they had no more use for it. At the point, humans would, 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 would be free to handle it or destroy it or hide it as they wished, uh, since it was no longer functional and therefore you know, no longer dangerous. Or if it was truly a piece of alien technology, then uh, they may have done what any of us would do with something that is ours. They may have just taken it with them. 
it would thus have vanished from the face of the earth, which is exactly what it did. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and I'm reminded of the line from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with when uh, Indiana Jones is told by his, his friend Shella that the Ark is something man was not meant to disturb. Death has always surrounded it. It is not of this earth. Uh, that's because it is an alien Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, I think we can, we can agree that that says it all right there. And that's all the time we have. So today's episode is our 10th. And with that, we conclude our first season of the program. Uh, we'll come back in two weeks on Sunday, August 1st, with a show in which uh, Lori and I have invited a couple of guests to come on to join us in a discussion. Uh, that's right. Uh, the topic we're going to cover is the extraterrestrial aspects of the religious symbols and teachings that are a part of Mormonism. It's actually packed full of references to ancient alien astronauts, and it's going to be a two-part show. And we'll do another episode with the same guests on August 8th. So that'll be the second part for that. Yeah, it's astonishing uh, how many celestial and astral elements there are to the Latter-day Saint religion. I, I've known quite a few Mormons, and they talked about that. One of the, the doctrines being that of the different levels of the universe. Um, very interesting. It should be a good show. Looking forward to it. Uh, very mm -hmm. much looking forward to it. So. We'll be with you again in two weeks on the first to start our next season. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And please send us your comments and ideas. We love to hear from all of you. And until then, everyone, thanks for joining us. And stay safe, stay peaceful. Most of all, stay curious. We'll see you soon. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to being with you again soon.